Okay, so we are going through the Bible together, and what I've been trying to do every week is find a passage of Scripture that you read and then teach on it. So this week, uh, one of the passages you read was in Luke chapter 14. But before I jump into it, I want to talk to you about a little something. Um, I'm not much of a sports fan. I think since I've been in Tucson, which is 23 years or something like that, I've been to one U of A football game. And I had a blast. It was awesome. I could do that more often. It was fun. But I'm not a sports fan. So, you know, if somebody offers me tickets, maybe I'll go. But I, I don't go out of my way to go. But one of the things I noticed is, like in a lot of the stadiums, the seating was segregated. You had some seats even behind poles. You know, just kind of like lame seats. And you had special box seats. And you got these wildcat club seats with air conditioning and recliners and free popcorn and sodas, and then you got the skybox seating. I imagine if you're in the right zone, you can get the right seats. It's not, I mean, I'd like to say it's only economic, but in our country, it's also social. You know, it's a socioeconomic thing. The higher you are up the totem pole, the better seats you can get. It's just the way it is. Um, same thing at the Tucson Rodeo. Now, that I do every year. I love going to the rodeo. Michaela and I, we go to the Tucson Rodeo every year, and we sit like a couple seats up from, from the box seats. And I'm like, those seats are not better than my seats. In fact, I kind of like my seats better. But they're in a box. So for maybe five more bucks, I can sit in a box. <laughs> well... I don't think I'll pay the extra five bucks to sit in a box. But I might pay the extra five bucks because nobody else is sitting anywhere in the box because they're not paying the five bucks, and I'll have some elbow room. So I'm thinking about going box seating for that. You know, I checked out the U of A football season pass tickets. Last year's list is still up. Here's what they cost. You want an, econ an economy seat for the season, $115. Now, an economy seat includes obstructed view seats. So you might be sitting there in a pillar right there. But that's okay. You can get up and go like this. Like $115. You should pay me to sit in that seat. $115. Wow, are you guys crazy? Then you come up to the coveted box seats, and those are twice as much. $215 at the low end. And the nicer seats are up around $2,500. That's a lot of money. But there's the skybox. Now, the skybox is a bargain because you don't get just one seat. You get 18. And all you have to pay for those 18 seats is $30,000. Don't moan. It's for a whole season. $35,000 for the better one. These are people who love U of A football, and they want to support the team. I mean, they're investing in football. They're not just enjoying the game. They're like, you know, supporters. A lot of them probably are graduates of the school, and they just want to see, you know, bear down go. I'm like, bear down go with somebody else's $30,000. <laughs> so in a sense, our seating in today's culture can be socially and definitely economically determined. I think we see social seating even more so when it comes to something like a wedding. Now, if you've ever been involved in planning a wedding, it goes something like this. Let's make the seating chart. 
Okay, I want to put Uncle Fred right next to Grandma. Oh, no. Oh, no, 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 no. Uncle Fred is not sitting anywhere near Grandma. Do you remember what happened last Christmas? Oh, yeah, okay. Let's put Uncle Fred over at the other table. Good idea. Now, I've got a friend from work I'd like to put up at the head table. The head table's just for family. Yeah, but he's a really good friend, and he might be giving me a promotion. And then the fight starts. And it's not just the head table people talk about. They want to see... They put a seating chart for everybody. Now, if you're in a big room, let's say you're in the size of this room for your wedding reception, and let's say this is the head table. Wouldn't you say the family and friends, the closer they are to you, the closer they are to the head table? So you get invited to the wedding, and your seat's right back there by the door. How do you feel? Maybe you're just happy to be at the wedding. Free food. I'm in. I'm good. Well, you know you're not that close to them, so you shouldn't be offended. Unless you're Uncle Bill. <laughs> Uncle Bill's lucky he even got invited. The groom said Uncle Bill shouldn't even come. The bride says we've got to invite everybody. The groom said Uncle Bill's an idiot. And he shouldn't even be allowed to come to the wedding. But he's an uncle. I don't care if he's an uncle. Do you remember what he did last Thanksgiving? He showed up drunk and picked a fight and the cops came to our house on Thanksgiving. What do you think he's going to do at the wedding? What if he toasts? Okay, how about we do this? We put Uncle Bill next to the big two ushers and tell them to grab him by the hair and drag him outside if he says anything. Done. That's how seating goes at weddings. In the days of Jesus, seating was even more significant. Um, that culture was what's called an honor-shame culture. The best way to help you understand an honor-shame culture is maybe to think back to World War II uh, a Japanese soldier maybe does a bad job, so he kills himself. Because he'd rather die than bear the shame of screwing up. That's an honor-shame culture. They take honor and shame as their highest virtues. And there are certain things in culture that bring you honor, certain things in culture that bring you shame. And their goal in life is to elevate in the honor department and stay away from the shame department. See, when Jesus had an argument about the, when Jesus' disciples had an argument about who's the greatest, it makes more sense because it was an honor-shame culture that was important to them. They were wrong. They should have known better. But now you understand their frame of reference. Seating, very important in the days of Jesus. Now that brings us to Luke chapter 14, verse 7. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. Now, if so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this man your seat. And then, humiliated, you'll have to take the least important place. But when you're invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he'll say to you, friend, friend, move up to a better place. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all your fellow guests. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. That last verse, that's the whole lesson. I'm going to talk more, but that's it. You need to go home understanding one thing and one thing only. He who humbles himself will be exalted, and he who exalts himself will be humbled. Today's lesson is humility. 
what it is, and how to grow in it. Jesus gave a whole lesson on it. But I want to help you further understand seeding in the days of Jesus. I believe I have a diagram for you. This is the typical seating arrangement. You know, you go to our culture and you have a table that people sit around. That's how people sit. In their culture, they didn't sit around a table. They reclined around a table. So this was the very traditional seating arrangements at almost every home and every party. You'd have a table in the middle surrounded by three sofas. So what you're looking at up here are actually three sofas. Let me get out my little pointer here. So this is one sofa right here, this rectangle. And it had room for three people to lay on it. Here's another sofa, room for three people, another sofa. Most of their sofas had three people on them. How awkward. How would you like to lay on a sofa with somebody right in front of you and somebody right behind you? Ew. Like, what if there's a big, fat, smelly guy right in front of you? And what if the guy behind you likes guys a little too much? You see how uncomfortable and awkward it could be? You've got to lay there with them and have dinner. And you can't just insult your host and say, you don't want to sit there. Honor, shame, culture. You've been assigned a seat. You need to keep it. You need to take it. So we're going to talk about this setup right here. This is called a triclinium. Tri as in triple or the word three. Clinium off of the word cline. Cline means couch or recliner. Look at the English word, recline, C-L-I-N-E. The Latin word is cline for this couch. Three of them, triclinium. And this is how they would lay. Left hand support their body. Right hand could reach the table and eat. And they would say, say and they would chit-chat with one another. But I'm thinking, how do you chit-chat with the guy behind you? Hey, what's up? up with you. Kind of seems a little uncomfortable, a little awkward, doesn't it? I don't think I would appreciate those kind of arrangements. But that's the way they ate. They liked it. Worked for them. Good enough. And the table was set up in a certain way. And by table, I mean the seating arrangements, reclining arrangements. The right-hand side was the lowest. That's where the guest of the least stature reclined. The guest of the highest stature was right here. Okay, so we're looking at the Last Supper arrangements. So the host sat in the middle of the first cleaner. And he would honor somebody. He would invite a special guest to be right here. So even though this is the host, this would be the seat of the highest honor. Now you're laying down. So this person's on your right. You can touch them with your right hand. They're your right-hand man. By the way, right-hand man. In battle, left hand held the shield. You're safe. Right hand held the sword. Your right side's exposed. So the guy standing to your, middle, or your immediate right guarded you. He protected you with his shield and sword. The guy on the right became known in our culture, and even in that culture, is the right-hand man, the man you trust, respect, and honored. That's the right-hand man. And so the guy on your right just became a saying. When somebody that you really relied upon, really trusted, respected, and honored, you just call him your right-hand man. You know, Jose is my right-hand man here at Book of Life. 
That's his position. He's the guy. I step down, he steps up. I trust him, I respect him, and he works very closely with Pastor Michael. In every situation, you got a right-hand man. And so, when you gave somebody that right-hand position at the table, you were saying, this person's special. They're trusted, they're respected, they're honored. We believe that position at the Last Supper was given to the Apostle John. Why John, and why do you believe John? Well, why I believe John is because it says at supper that the disciple leaned up against Jesus' chest. Now you know how that could have happened. They didn't sit in chairs like this. They reclined, somebody in front, somebody in back. So if he leaned up back against Jesus' chest, he had to be in front of him. So it makes sense that the Apostle John was at the highest place. He is called in Scripture the disciple whom Jesus loved. He loved all his disciples. But the point is, he had a special relationship with John. And John was the youngest of the disciples. In an honor-shame culture, age puts you higher up on the social ladder. So the fact that the youngest apostle sat here, it just goes to show you how awesome Jesus is. He who humbles himself will be exalted. He exalts himself will be humbled. John was the youngest, probably the quietest, the, the kindest, the meekest. Jesus loved him, and Jesus gave him the place of honor at the Last Supper. Where do you think Peter was? I'm guessing right there. <laughs> because Peter wasn't the quietest. Peter wasn't the humblest. I know he wasn't here. How do I know that? Because when Jesus said somebody was going to betray him, John, it says in the Scripture that Peter motioned to John to get his attention, to ask Jesus who he was talking about. So Peter had to motion to John. That meant there was distance. So he couldn't have been here. Chances are he could have been here because he would have had a motion to get his attention. So anywhere within here would have worked. But I know he wasn't here. Now remember, these are the apostles. you got to sit them somewhere. They argued about who would be the greatest. So what did Jesus do? He took the youngest. Remember the story? He took a, a, a little child and said, let the least become the greatest of all, and if you want to be great, serve others. And then at supper, he took the youngest and gave him the place of honor. That's so Jesus-ish, isn't it? So I think it's real cool. Now, at this one clean A, three places, the host, the guest of highest honor, and then the guest of honor. Highest honor, second honor. Who sat there at the Last Supper? Now, we know that this guest of honor got to share the dipping plate with the host. The dipping plate is also called the sop. Let me read to you something. Jesus was deeply troubled, and he said to his disciples, I tell you for certain that one of you will betray me. They were confused about what he meant, and they just stared at each other. So he said, one of you is going to betray me. And they were like, see, Jesus talked in parables a lot. They never knew when to take him literally. So sometimes Jesus would speak, and they're like, I don't know what he's talking about. Is this a real thing, or is this a parable? And they got embarrassed to ask, because he might tell them they were so dull. So sometimes they were just like, It was probably right around this time Peter was going, John, John, what's he talking about? 
And they stared at each other. The disciple Jesus loved, this is John, the disciple Jesus loved was leaning against his chest at the meal. And Peter motioned for that disciple to find out which one Jesus meant. So the disciple that was leaning back against Jesus asked, Lord, which one of us are you talking about? And Jesus answered, I will dip this piece of bread in the sauce and give it to the one I was talking about. Then Jesus dipped the bread and gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Right then, Satan entered Judas, and Jesus said, Judas, go quickly and do what you have to do. And no one at the meal understood what Jesus meant. Okay, firstly, why didn't they understand what he meant? Because, like I told you, sometimes he spoke in parables, sometimes he didn't. He told Judas to go do something and do what? They didn't know. They didn't know what Jesus, Judas was going to betray him. Jesus knew. They didn't know. But he said, the one I dip with. Yes, he did, but who heard him? And also, it's Passover. They did a lot of dipping. In fact, in those meals, you dipped all the time anyway. So maybe this wasn't the first time he dipped with Judas, and he was dipping with the other disciples later. So it wasn't as obvious to them as it is to you and I. Who got the sop? The person on the cleane who sat right there, who we just learned was Judas Iscariot. Why in the world would Jesus put Judas in the place of honor? Well, bigger question, why did he even make him a disciple in the first place? He knew what kind of guy Judas was. In fact, at the beginning of the gospel, it tells us that Jesus knew Judas was going to betray him. Why would you honor and befriend somebody you know is going to betray you? Because it's Jesus we're talking about. If God judged all of us in advance for what we were going to do, how many of us would ever be liked by anybody, let alone God? Right? So he doesn't prejudge. He knows what people are going to do. And it gets worse. There's a prophecy about this. Listen to what Psalm 41.9 says. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Psalm 41 says that Judas was Jesus' close friend. He wasn't just a disciple. He wasn't the guy, you know, the, the 11 were walking up here and Judas was in the back, ignored, and everybody hated him. Judas probably had a nice personality. Jesus liked him. They were friends. He was a trusted friend. He carried the money bags. So Jesus liked him, loved him, enjoyed his company, and gave him a place of honor. He treated him with utmost respect and dignity. And I can tell you what, out of all the apostles, the one who had the least excuse to betray Jesus was Judas. He gave him every opportunity to show him his love. Judas was just evil. That's just all there is to it. Some people are just bad. And Judas chose to go bad. It says in Psalm 41, even my close friend in whom I trusted. But the Hebrew doesn't say close friend. Maybe they think it's an idiom, so they translated it that way. The, East, the, the, the Hebrew is a man of my peace. That would be the way to kind of woodenly translate the Hebrew, maybe my man of peace, my peaceful man. So this guy isn't just a friend. He's like a peace partner. 
this guy, you trust him, man, because he's your man of peace. Judas was his man of peace, and his man of peace betrayed him. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been betrayed by a close friend? Let me see your hand if you have. Oh, wow, I'm sorry. Almost all of you put up your hands. It sucks, doesn't it? It's the worst of the worst. If a stranger, somebody you know a little bit, betrays you, yeah, whatever. You, you hate it, but what do you expect? There? But a close friend? Really? You know, if you could count the knife scars in my back, it's sad. It's sad. And I'm sure you got the same scars. Uh, I read a, a report by a psychiatrist some years ago. It was an article, and he was talking about grief. He says, hundreds, thousands of people I've counseled over the years said, the worst pain isn't from losing a loved one, even if the loved one is a child, isn't even from rape. The worst psychological pain comes when, you're be, when, when somebody commits adultery. That's what he said. In light of this, that makes sense. It's the betrayal of your closest friend. And that's how Jesus' journey to the cross began. His pain started right there. Well, all of this is to help you understand the overarching concept of humility. Jesus told his disciples to humble themselves and let others exalt them. At that supper, Jesus exalted John and Judas. And he humbled himself. Now, I'm not talking about the seating arrangements. When you went to dinner, and there would be a slave there to wash your feet. Who washed your feet? The slave. Well, Jesus didn't have any slaves. So the disciples all laid down to dinner. They ate. Or while they were eating, I don't know exactly how it worked out. Jesus got up, took off his outer robe, got some water, and knelt down and started washing their dirty, stinky feet. Not a slave, not a master, the Christ, the Messiah of God, the Son of God, God in human flesh. What? He got as low as a human could get that night. And he said, oh, Peter was like, I'm not going to have you wash my feet. Uh-uh. And he said, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you and I are done. Peter said, wash them, wash them, wash all of me. Jesus said, you call me your Lord and Master, and that's good because I am. And if I'm your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, can't you wash each other's feet? You'll notice nobody offered to wash anybody's feet. Peter didn't get up and say, oh, Lord, nobody washed your feet. Let me wash your feet. So Jesus did it. Now, if Jesus can humble himself that low, who are we? to ever take on any airs whatsoever about anything. You, you see what I'm saying? Crazy. Crazy humility. So James was there at that Last Supper, and later he wrote a book of the Bible called James. Listen to what he wrote in it. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. I just can't imagine that James wasn't thinking of that very thing when he wrote that. Peter was there. 
Here's what he wrote. All of you, clothe yourselves in humility. Clothe yourselves in humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. In our culture, pride, we're not an honor-shame culture, but we do love pride. We like to build ourselves up, have other people build us up. We're all about self-esteem, thinking we're better than we are. But God's way is not that way. God's way is humility, and God resists the proud. So let me explain to you what exactly biblical humility is and then give you a few steps on how to pursue it. Um, humility is the act of not putting yourself above others. So that, there's three little parts to this. That's the first. Humility is the act of not putting yourself above others or in front of others. Two, humility is the act of putting yourself beneath others. Those aren't the same thing. One is you're putting yourself forward. The other is putting yourself beneath. And third, it's not just the action. It's the attitude. We need to grow in humility. All of us do. The actions will lead to the attitude. So if you start doing humble things because you know they're right, eventually they'll become your nature to do. Initially, it might be you're just doing it because you think it's right, even though you don't really agree with it. But eventually, over time, you'll learn the lesson in your soul. You can train yourself in humility. You must train yourself in humility. The most powerful passage on humility in the Bible comes from the book of Philippians. Let me read it to you. It's just a few verses, and then we'll go through it a piece at a time, and then I'll be done. Listen. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility... Consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and become obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. All right, piece at a time. It says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. I'm going to give you six pointers on how to pursue humility out of this passage. And this is the first one. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. I don't know what it means to do something out of vain conceit. Maybe your mind can go to it. Mine can't. But I can understand selfish ambition. And this can be a hard lesson. Um, you work in a job. You've got the opportunity for a promotion. How many people do you have to step on to get it? If the answer is more than zero, maybe you shouldn't get it. I'm not saying ambition's wrong, but selfish ambition is. I'm not saying promotion is wrong, but crushing people to get there is. But you could even be more godly than that, for example. 
Let's say there's two of you up for a job, and the job is a big increase in salary. It's you and your wife and your dog, Blue. And your wife's got a great job. She's a doctor. Your job's not so bad either. You don't need any more money. Everybody likes more money, but you definitely don't need it. It'd be nice to have. It always is, but you don't need it. Now, the other guy's got four kids, a special needs child, and is taking care of his mother, and his wife's unemployed, and you're both up for the job. You might just take your name off the list and let him have the job. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. See, with God, man, this stuff's real. When he says love people, he means it. It's not trite verbiage. And then he says, in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Well, how do you do that? It's part of the training process. Let me ask you a question. And I don't, you don't need to put your hands up for it. Let's see if I can get it out of my brain the way I want to communicate it. Imagine there's two people. I'll go back to the hospital. One's the doctor and one's the orderly. I don't know what they call them today. The people that clean up after the doctors and make the rooms clean. They got the dirty job. They clean up all the yuck. Who's the higher on the social ladder? The doctor. Doctor gets paid a lot more. Everybody defers to the doctor. Everybody thinks the doctor's awesome because that's the doctor. And then there's the janitor who people just ignore or order around or look at in disdain. Who's the better person? I haven't told you. We don't know. But right now, just because one's a doctor and one's a janitor doesn't mean one's the better person, does it? Maybe the janitor is a man of God who loves his wife and spends his extra time taking care of his children. In fact, chose not to go to college because he wanted to be a family man instead and spend all of his time with his wife and kids. He works at the church. He's good in the community. He's honest. He'll give you the shirt off his back. He'll change your flat tire when it's 105 out in the summer. And the doctor's an idiot. He thinks he's God and makes sure everybody else thinks that too. But he's rich. And he's not even rich by some standards. But he thinks he's all that, or she thinks she's all that. Who's the better person? The janitor. Which one should you aspire to be? The janitor. Maybe aspire for the salary of the doctor, but the character of the janitor. So we should consider others better than ourselves. In this scenario, is that janitor a better person than you? See, you don't know the person sitting to the left or to the right, the person you've cut off at the light or who's you put your grocery shop cart right in front of theirs. You don't know these people. Don't assume anything about them other than this. They're probably better than you are. That's what Jesus wants you to assume. Esteem others better than yourselves. The third, so the first is don't do anything out of selfish ambition. The second thing is consider other people's better than yourselves. The third thing is to consider other people's needs. And that comes from verse 4. Verse 4 says, each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And that's pretty self-explanatory, especially in light of the example I gave you a moment ago about the jobs and the promotion. The next one is 
Our attitude should mirror Jesus's. Our mindset, our approach to life and other people. And this is Jesus's attitude, verse 6. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. So up in heaven, God's up there, and he's looking down at earth, and he says, i got to go down there and set these people straight. They need help. So the Son of God, Jesus, part of the Trinity, said, I'll go down there, be born as a human being. I'll become one of them. I will guide them. I will nurture them. I will teach them. And then I will die for their sins. God thought that was a great plan. They agreed. And off he went. It wasn't like, I'm God. To become a lowly human, ew, I would never do such a thing. What would you become? Would you become a maggot crawling around in a dunghill to save the maggots? Well, I'm not saying humans are maggot, maggots, but on the scale of God to human, well, we're maggots. And yet he said, I love you, and I will do whatever it takes to spend eternity with you. You're heading for hell, and i got to snatch you out of the flames. I'm coming down, and I will give up my divine prerogatives, my seat in heaven, as it were, my holy angels, my throne for a manger. He was born near smelly, stinky animals. Talk about humble. And he was born a Jew. I'm telling you what, if you want to be born, be born a Roman. The Romans were in charge of everything. They had it good. And be born a senator. Have some money. Have some status. Have some clout. Be born in a marble palace with running water, with servants. <coughs> no, be born a Jew subjugated, lowly people who have nothing. And not just a Jew, because he could have been born into a rich Jewish family. No, no, no. He chose a craftsman family. Joseph was poor. How do I know this? Well, for starters, Jesus was born in a manger. And you know if he had money, he could have bought a room anywhere. Secondly, after Jesus was born, they had to bring an offering to the temple for the birth of the child. There was two offerings allowed, a poor man's offering and a regular person's offering. Guess which one they offered? The poor man's offering. The Bible says, let this mind be your mind. Be like Jesus. He lessened himself for us. So you should be putting through your mind, as you pursue humility, how can I lessen myself for other people? I don't know. But it's something God would have us do. I tell you, I'm not going to mention his name because the lesson's on humility, and it might give him some pride. He's got enough pride. He doesn't need any more. But one of our staff people here has no problem cleaning out your dirty toilets, and he's high up on staff. He's not the janitor. Janitor does it because he gets paid to do it. Of course, John would do it anyway. He's that kind of guy. But I'm talking about one of our pastors. He sees a dirty toilet. He cleans it. It's the kind of people you got at this church, people who lessen themselves, don't think too highly of themselves, and just are here to serve. I ask them to do anything. They never complain. They do it. But even more than that, I rarely have to ask. They just do it anyway. 
awesome people. All right, number one, we shouldn't be selfish if we want to pursue humility. Number two, we should consider others better than ourselves. Number three, we should consider other people's needs. Number four, we should lessen ourselves to benefit others. Number five, it's in verse seven. Listen to what it says. He made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. So our number five is we should become servants. That should be our goal. I don't mean to become a butler in somebody's house, which is a fine job. I'm not saying it's not. I just mean we should be helping people. And a lot of you do it all the time. You offer to help your neighbor's lawn when they're holed up in the hospital. Little old lady's trying to wheel her big garbage thing to the street. You take it and do it for her. Your servants, that's what I'm talking about. You do it. Just let's do more of it. Jesus said, this is what he said about himself, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So if he came here to serve people, what are we doing looking for people to serve us? We, we're, we got it all backwards. Number six, verse seven. He made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, verse eight, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So the sixth thing is obedience. We should be obedient to God. God tells us we do. No questions asked. All right, done. Here's what we learned, just to wrap it up. We learned what humility is and how to aspire towards it. Humil humility is the act of putting others above ourselves. Humility is the act of putting ourselves beneath others. It's not just the action, it's the attitude. That's the third. Six steps or things we can do. First of all, we shouldn't be selfish. Secondly, we should consider others better than ourselves. Thirdly, we should consider other people's needs. Fourthly, we should lessen ourselves to benefit others. Fifth, we should serve others. And sixth, we should obey God. If you have a hard time with today's lesson, you need it. Go home and start praying and ask God to help you. Like I'm going to do. <laughs> Please join me in prayer. Okay, Lord, we understand. We don't like it, but we get it. So we need to go from getting it to liking it. Because you're the best. You know. You know right from wrong. You know good. We don't. So help us to pursue good. Give us little opportunities to grow so that we might become more and more like Jesus. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen.